0: Hello again. Happy July... still. But more importantly, welcome to another edition of Hot SciComm Summer. My guest today is Siri Carpenter, and she's played a big role in one of the great resources for science communication. She helped found The Open Notebook. Let me just read from their mission statement because it's so good. It's a, quote, non organization that is widely regarded as the leading online source of training and educational materials for journalists who cover science... They're dedicated to fostering a supportive, diverse, and inclusive global community that enables reporters and editors who cover science to learn and thrive. Through their comprehensive library of articles on the craft of science journalism and extensive training and mentoring programs, they empower journalists at all experience levels around the world to tell impactful, engaging stories about science. Like, you're inspired, right? I'm inspired. (laughs) I mean, just go to theopennotebook.com and you'll find hundreds of articles, interviews with science reporters, a database of hundreds of article pitches that became published stories, masterclasses on a bunch of topics. It's all there. Plus, in 2020, Siri released a book she edited of popular pieces from The Open Notebook. It's called The Craft of Science Writing. And so, funny story, or like... I don't know. Interesting story? Whatever. I was reading the craft of science writing last year because it's the kind of thing that I would read. And as I was reading Siri's introduction, I realized I was already familiar with her. So back in July 2020, I talked to social psychologist Mazarin Bonashi for my main podcast, Opinion Science. She's one of the key figures in how we understand implicit bias. So. I was very excited to talk with her, and she ended up telling a bunch of really great stories about her journey as an academic. And then after we wrapped up, she told me that telling the stories behind her influential research reminded her of something that her former student has been up to.
1: My student, Siri Carpenter, who became a science writer, she runs something called the Open Notebook, where she interviews journalists who have written a major piece about the story behind the story.
0: So... I knew about this before I knew about it. (laughs) And here we are, three years later, closing this Inception-style loop to get the story behind the story, behind the story, behind the story, you get it. I was excited to talk to Siri about her own story, going from a social psychology PhD student to this key player in science communication. By the way, as some very quick background, we start out talking about Siri's early days as a social psychologist and her work with Mazarine on implicit bias. She mentions this thing called the IAT, and if you've never heard that particular acronym before, it stands for Implicit Association Test, which is a popular way behavioral scientists attempt to measure implicit bias. So now you know what that is when it comes up. Okay, I'm happy to share our conversation with you, so let's just get right into it. I was look. I was wondering when you were in grad school, and so when I looked up when you wrapped up working in Masrhan Banaji's lab at Yale, it's like it was like the thick of IAT time, right? Like, wasn't it like yes. right then you were like right there in the pocket of this whole thing kicking off? Um, yes. And so, like, what what were you doing as a social psychologist? Like, if we start the story there, like, what mm-hmm. were you expecting your life to look like <laughs> when you walked into that lab on day one?
1: when I went to grad school. Um, so back then, Mazarine Banaji was at Yale. And um, so I went to grad school. Um, I had been, as an undergrad, I had been studying prejudice and stereotyping in the lab of another researcher at the University of Wisconsin. And I was interested in this then felt like pretty new area of implicit bias research and um, and went to study with Mazarine, And um, it was during that first, I think that Maybe it was that first semester of my first year that Mazarin and Tony Greenwald got to talking, and um, and he had just cooked up this idea of the, of the IAT, and she came back to our lab talking about it, and and we all started doing research, you know, one by one, kind of converting our um, research into um, using this new tool, the IAT that was in development, and. Um, a number of years ago, Mazarin told me that actually my dissertation was the first dissertation to use the IAT um, because I just happened to fall in that that right time where it was brand new, and I wasn't already working on my dissertation when the IAT came into existence. So, anyway, um, when I got to grad school, I was really interested in the subject of uh, prejudice, stereotyping, implicit bias, racism, um, this whole intersection of ideas. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. I just knew that I was really interested in those ideas and I felt very passionate about about um, that work. And um, it was a, two or three years into my grad school that I um, learned, you know, figured out about the existence of this, this field called science writing. And um, I had already started to feel like although I was really interested in this work, I wasn't sure that I wanted to be a professor. I felt like, you know, maybe I'm too much of a dilettante for that. Maybe I want to be able to be spending my time thinking and working on lots of different things and not just kind of diving more and more narrowly into one area of, of thinking. And, but I didn't know what that, might look like for me um until until I had this kind of brainwave that science writing was was a thing so
0: so like how much of a thing was it at the time like I'm trying to sort of like imagine this moment when probably the number of like online outlets for doing this kind of work like it just seems like now there's like a million different places and ways you could do this where where my guess is it wasn't quite the same culture then um and so like what what were you sort of imagining like the work of it being in those earliest days
1: yeah that's exactly right it was very early internet um google didn't exist yet i remember that at the moment where i thought you know, wait everybody who's writing these articles on tuesdays for the new york times that seems to be their job seems (laughs) like this is a job i i I think that's the job I want. I went home. Of course, I also didn't have a laptop or a cell phone. But at the end of the day, I went home to my computer and I used this search engine called Alta Vista and um, and typed science writing into it. And um, you know, lo and behold, yes, it's a thing. It's a profession. There's a whole national association of these people. And uh, but at the time, science writing. And all of journalism, you know, the internet was was not the primary place where, where science writing was taking place. It was still in print. And um, in fact, I remember that the National Association of Science Writers had a page on their website that was called Science Writers Who Have Email. So <laughs> that's that's the kind of context that we were working in. And, and really, the first task for me was to figure out, like, what is this thing like starting with, is science writing the right term for it? Oh, yes, it is. Okay, well, how do you get into that? What does it mean? What happens? What what, what does it mean to be a science writer? Um, I was very, very fortunate, um, much more so than a lot of people in that my advisor, Mazarin, was extremely supportive of my desire to become a science writer and um, and helped, helped me foster that and gave me the, the space and time, particularly over the next two summers to do internships in science writing and that's that's how i got my start
0: it, it might just be because these are the stories that i focus on but i get the sense that nowadays there's at least a good number of academics turned science writers and i'm curious at the time was was that path like fairly charted out or w- were you mostly joining like classical like journalists who are doing science writing
1: I think there have always been a lot of people who have gone from science into science writing, as opposed to going from some other area of journalism into science writing. Um, it's, I think it's always been a mix, but I think it's it's often been a field that has, I mean, for decades been a field that has attracted um, people with scientific training who are somewhere along the trajectory of becoming a scientist, either they're an undergrad or a grad student or a postdoc or a working scientist and who start to feel like, gee, you know, I love science. I'm interested in thinking about the science and talking about the science and writing about the science, but I'm less interested in like working at the bench, as they say. And so I don't think I was particularly unusual at that time. And certainly not now there's, you know, I still every day I talk with people coming into the field who are in grad school or are postdocs or are just out of, you know, kind of early career scientists and looking to make a career change. I think one thing that I think or I hope has changed is that it used to be very common to hear people talk about alternative careers. You know, if you were interested in getting a PhD in any field of science, but then not becoming an academic scientist or or an industry scientist. Um, that was referred to as an alternative career. And I have always pushed back against that idea because I just feel like this idea that, that you know academia is the default and the only good option of what to do with a, an education in science is incorrect. And um, so to treat it as the, as the default and that everything else is kind of a lesser than alternative um, is problematic.
0: I don't know what it is. This set of interviews that I'm doing for this summer's series, I keep coming back to this question of what makes science journalism different from other forms of journalism, right? So rather than as an alternative to academia, mm-hmm. like, I'm curious to get your take on one, like, how how do you define science journalism? Like, what is this job? <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. And then also, like, is it different from other forms of journalism? And if so, how?
1: That's a really great question. Um, The way that I think about it is that science journalism is a very multifaceted thing, and it means many different things to different people in different contexts. So there is one kind of classical type of science journalism that means um, really specializing in some, perhaps some specific beat within science, and writing for a specialized publication that's aimed at a public that is particularly interested in science. So think, for example, of, um, you know, somebody who is a reporter or an editor for Scientific American, or for um, the front of book of Science Magazine, or for Discover Magazine, or any number of um, publications, media outlets that are specifically focused on science in some way, either more generally or more specifically in one area of science, and are aimed at you know, what you might think of as a science-interested public. And then another strand of science journalism, another kind of classical strand, is newspaper journalism, like you see at the New York Times, the Science Times, or the Washington Post, or the LA Times, or the Dallas Morning News, these days it's mostly the larger major metro um, papers or national papers that have a science section and have dedicated science reporters. It used to be the case that there were, you know, probably up to a couple of hundred newspapers that had a science section and that had a science desk and that has really gone away and that number has dropped from, I think, many years ago I read that the the number had dropped from something like 150 newspapers to 19 or something that have a science desk. So that has really changed. Um, Of course, for many, you know, a long time now, we've been in an era where um, the internet is very mature, and there are tons of online only media outlets that um, are very prestigious, you know, they win Pulitzer Prizes, and they, and they win National Magazine Awards, and they, and they um, garner a lot of respect, rightly so. Um, And then something that I think about a lot is, I think that we should be thinking of science journalism, not as just being stories that are um, 100% about science, but rather to think about the fact that science is part of every story and um, that local journalists, TV journalists, radio journalists, you know, people who work for local media outlets or hyper-local media outlets, regional magazines, um, these are the places uh, where most people get their news. Most people did not get their news about covid for example, from, um, from specialty publications, most people got it from their local TV stations, radio stations, newspapers, if they're lucky enough to have a newspaper, um, a local newspaper. And so I think it's really important that we not um, keep the coverage of science in a silo over here, where it's people who really seek out science news will go and subscribe to this publication and read it. But rather, we think about the ways that we can incorporate um, scientific information into you know many other kinds of stories. And that's something that we're spending a lot of time focusing on at the Open Notebook. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess we haven't talked about mm-hmm. the Open Notebook yet, but it's but that focus on local journalism, it's always been true that science is part of every story. I think that has never been more acutely obvious than um, since 2020.
0: So it raises this other question of like, so in terms of the content, maybe that's different, but in terms of the skill it takes to report science stories, do you think Mm -hmm. it's fundamentally different from other kinds of reporting? Because particularly if we're looking for this kind of fusion, Now, all of a sudden, everyone's a science journalist. And so is that just, uh, oh, yeah, you just like swap out who you're talking about? uh, Or do you have to put on an actually quite different hat when you're doing that kind of work?
1: Certainly, there are um, there are technical um, challenges that come with reporting on science. If you if you are completely lost when it comes to reading a scientific paper, or understanding basics about the scientific process, um, understanding the nature of statistics, um, the difference between an experiment and an observational study. There are, there are core things about understanding science that play into covering science effectively, whether you're doing it in a, in a you know, really focused way all the time, it's your beat, or whether it's something that you incorporate into stories now and then. You know, there are also a huge number of overlapping um, skills and necessities that come into being a science journalist or being any other kind of journalist, being able to weigh claims in a way that is not overly credulous, understanding how to check facts, understanding how to represent um, diverse voices. Within your stories, understanding how to recognize conflicts of interest and where they might play into a story—those are things that are universal to all of journalism, or should be universal to all of journalism. So, um, yes, I think that the act of doing science journalism can sometimes feel different, just because the subject matter can be so technical and can involve a lot of like having to kind of parse out um, meaning from jargon and so on, but. If you think about it every field of journalism has its own jargon you know if i were trying to cover the u.s house of representatives as a political reporter i would be absolutely lost in the jargon i'm sure and you know whether you're covering travel or politics or education or science or um, crime all of these fields have their um, their specialized material that you need to understand. It. So the same is true of science journalism. I would argue that um, these are not that is not an a, an unclimbable barrier for journalists, um, but it is the case that it can feel like it, and and so we need to try to to help people find those points of connection in order to to feel. Um, less overwhelmed by the prospect of covering science
0: so to go back to your story <laughs> uh, y- you finally decide all this stuff sounds great i'm going to do it uh wh- what are you doing like first step like i, I am now a science writer <laughs> or at least i get to call myself that <laughs> whether or not anyone else does wh- wh- what are those first steps that you take to 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 do this
1: Yeah, well, I can tell you about my path. And even though that was like 20 years ago, it's still quite a familiar path for a lot of people if they're coming out of academia into science writing. So I mentioned that I, you know, I started by Googling or not Googling. There was no Google, (laughs) but searching for it and, you know, finding out that there is a National Association of Science Writers. Um, My first step was I went to that page that said science writers who have email and like I emailed everybody on it. Um, Maybe it was like 20 people or something. And, um, and I, you know, I had very unfocused questions, but basically my question was like, what is this? And how does it work? (laughs) And, um, which is not, you know, the the way that I recommend approaching an informational interview type of situation, <laughs> but what can I say? And I, one of the people who I emailed was a young journalist named Charles Seif, who now is a journalism professor at NYU. But back then he was a young journalist who had graduated, I think, with a math PhD from Yale. And I think maybe he took pity on me because I was also at Yale and he felt an affinity or something. But he wrote back a very generous, long email. Um, I wish I still had it. I don't have it. But I remember that um, he really just kind of explained how it works, how there are different areas of science writing. And um, and he told me about this um, AAAS Mass Media Fellowship Program, which is still going today, very strong. It's a um, really wonderful avenue into science writing for um, for people in the sciences who are coming who want who are interested in science writing and um, i was fortunate enough to get one of those fellowships um, so the next summer i had my first internship in science writing and that was really my um, my first foray into the field i guess my first foray was i went to the annual meeting of the national association of science writers nasw And um, for the first time, got to meet other science writers. And it was thrilling. I just absolutely loved it. And um, I roomed with a couple of other prospective science writers who, I forget how I met them, but somehow we found each other and three of us shared a hotel room and then would come back and compare notes (laughs) every night about what we had learned by talking to other science writers, just trying to figure it all out. But then that summer, I had that internship Um, at the Richmond Times Dispatch in Virginia, through the AAAS Mass Media Fellowship. And that was where I really got my start. I had this uh, amazing mentor, AJ Hostetler, who was the science writer for the the Richmond Times Dispatch at the time. And she was just a terrific mentor, taught me a huge amount. And, you know, by the end of that summer, or probably by the end of that first week, I just felt convinced like, yep, this is what I want to do. It was great,
0: and this is while you were in grad school, still, right? Sort of, yeah. Feeling I was still in grad
1: out. school, feeling it out, and um, and like I say, Mazarine. Um, one of the ways that she supported me was by letting me go off and have a summer of interning at a newspaper instead of working on my dissertation, hmm. and and then she let me do the same thing again the next summer and a different internship, science news magazine, and um, you know that was to have that kind of running start to get. Some training and experience, um, get my feet wet in science writing while I was still working on my PhD was really a gift.
0: Hmm. Were you in those first forays, were you only covering social science or were you whatever they threw at you? You had to,
1: whatever yeah. they threw at me, yeah, it was, it was, um, all over the map. Um, I, I did cover a little bit of social science, I think, but not much. I covered medicine and, Astronomy and space and physics and chemistry and you know study of the week kinds of things Um, and a little bit of more featurey kind of work and um, yeah it was it was a real hodgepodge and as someone who had been feeling like oh I don't think I want to be so narrowly focused like you have to be in academia then to go to like anything in any field of science could be part of my beat was really thrilling
0: so that was an exciting part of it for you
1: (laughs) yeah yeah just the variety and the idea that you could you could take these sort of esoteric sounding studies and um, and turn them into a story that you know you hope people would actually want to read Um, and learning how to do that learning how to to write in a way that wasn't um, the term that AJ, my mentor at, at Richmond, used was muscle bound to learn to write in a way that mm-hmm. wasn't really academic and stilted and, and muscle bound. Um, it was just a it was a really thrilling experience. I had the time of my life that summer.
0: <laughs> OK, I, th- I think it's probably about time we talk about The Open Notebook. Uh-huh. And so after getting your feet wet for a while, uh, you start this. Like amazing thing that still is a resource uh, for so many. So uh, w- walk me through sort of like the initial idea for what this would end up as, and also kind of like, what is this thing that that you've been growing?
1: Sure. Um, well, I, um, I didn't start the Open Notebook um, right away. I was actually working in science writing for about 10 years before um, the Open Notebook came about. Um, So I, I had a job for a couple of years out of grad school, and then I was freelancing. And, you know, freelancing, writing for various different publications, various topics. And I had gotten to be friends with Jeannie Erdman, who is a a science and health writer in outside of St. Louis. And um, Jeannie and I would chat on the phone regularly, and kind of acted as accountability buddies for each other. And we talked about what we were working on and what we were procrastinating on and so on. And oftentimes, we would find ourselves saying, you know, I just read this really great story in the New York Times. I really just read this really great story in whatever publication. Uh, What a great story. I wish I had thought of that story or wonder how they did that. I always say that for me, the open notebook was kind of born in a moment of flailing and procrastination. <laughs> <laughs> flailing in the sense that although I was doing work that was interesting to me, I felt like I wasn't maybe reaching my full potential as as a reporter. I felt like I was, you know, struggling to understand how to pull ideas together and make them viable as stories that I could sell and I was more often taking assignments from editors and then reporting those stories and writing them, but they they hadn't originated with me. And I had a couple of experiences of doing stories that that did originate with me and that were really meaningful, but I also felt like I couldn't replicate that, like they kind of felt like they dropped into my lap. And so I really felt like I was troubled by this idea of um, just not really feeling like there was a secret out there that other people knew about how to find ideas and bring them to fruition as science stories. And Jeannie, I think, kind of felt the same way. And then one day I was, I will admit, completely procrastinating. I had some story that, you know, I needed to be working on and was procrastinating. And I had this idea, I just read this story by Malcolm Gladwell about ketchup in The New Yorker. And it was such a you know, kind of quirky story. Like, I think the premise of it was sort of like, there's all these kinds of mustard, but there's only one kind of ketchup. Why is that? And, and I just felt like, I don't get like, how do you approach a story like that? (laughs) Like, I, I know how to approach a story by reading about studies in journals, and then writing about them. But like, you know, did you read the Journal of Ketchup Studies? <laughs> like where did this idea come from? And I had this idea that if I could just talk to Malcolm Gladwell about how he got the idea for that story and then what was the first thing that he did, that I would like understand how to do it all. It would solve all my problems, and so I emailed him, and I thought you know he he's a like famous writer he's not going to write me back, and I was just procrastinating, but he did have an email address on his website. And so I emailed him. And then to my surprise, he wrote, he did write back. And he said, sure, he would talk with me about that story. And, and he gave me his cell phone number. And, um, and we had a call. And I talked with him for was very generous with his time, like 45 minutes or something. And he told me about the origins of that story. And, you know, that conversation kind of extended from there to talking about you know the the ins and outs of being a science writer and and um, his experiences and how he finds stories, and so on. It was great. And it just kind of left me with this feeling like I want to do more of this. like talk I want to talk to more people about their stories. And so that, combined with those conversations I'd been having with Jeannie, kind of um are what led to this idea of let's let's interview a bunch of people to get the story behind their story. And at first, it was just we just wanted to do that for ourselves, just like we would do these interviews, and then we would understand more about how to be good journalists. And it was only as we kind of got underway working on that, that we thought, maybe these are really interesting. Maybe some other people would want to read these interviews as well. Maybe we should like put them on a website somewhere. And there wasn't really a website to put them on. So we were like, well, maybe we should could we really could we spend $150 or whatever it was to to buy a domain name and create a website? And so we did. And um and that's how the open notebook was born was really just this idea we're gonna do some of these interviews. I think we thought maybe we would do like fifteen or twenty of them and then um that would be it. Like how many could you possibly need? And now it's you know, almost 13 years later and we've published more than 500 articles at the Open Notebook. It's not just those story behind the story interviews, but um, lots and lots of deeply reported articles about the craft. And we have multiple mentoring programs and workshops and courses. And, you know, we're just a whole different beast, but it really started out with this idea of like, we just, we're just trying to figure out how to do it.
0: It's, it's so funny. I mean, I mentioned this before, but it it just reminds me of doing this series where I was like, I like this thing. And I just I just want to talk to these people, (laughs) like, just like get figure out, like, why do you how did you do that? And like, what did you learn in the last like, like you're so much more experienced than me? And you go, and kind of like the same thing, like, honestly, I just want to talk to these people, but like, I guess I might as well share them if if I'm able to record them. (laughs) Uh, Yeah,
1: I think there's kind of a secret sauce there that, you know, when a story, any kind of story is born out of a situation where you are also the ideal audience, (laughs) you know, like you're doing it, you know, when the questions have been sufficiently answered because they've been sufficiently answered for you. Hmm. I think that is, um, that's a real secret to success.
0: Mm-hmm. What, do you recall like in those earliest ones, like insights that kind of changed the game for you? Like, did, did they help you? So yes, you've built this resource for the world, but what, what did it do for you?
1: Yeah, I mean ironically now my full time job is running the yeah. open notebook and not actually reporting and writing feature stories for magazines. Um but it did help me a lot. I you know, I think it took time. It wasn't like there was any one story that I you know, I read that interview or did that interview and then felt like, ah, now I get how to do it. Um one of the early insights really was that there are there are just many good ways to report a story and to tell a story. And um, so my idea that we would do, you know, 15 of these or something, and then that would sort of cover it was just wildly incorrect because, um, you know, every time that we interview somebody new about the story behind their story, or we annotate a story to really dig into what makes it so good, it's different from every other one. And so um, in a way, I think that experience of just seeing like interviewing these people who I admired, and seeing that they too, sometimes felt like they were flailing, they too, sometimes procrastinated, they too, you know, had a lot of, you know, anxieties over whether they were good enough, whether they were cut out for this, um, was it called me down. And you know, gave me more confidence. Generally, it didn't there was no like, single magic key that then I unlocked it and knew how to do this other thing this thing that I had been struggling to do. But I think it did give me a greater sense of, um, I think I belong in this community. I don't, there's nothing, um, there's nothing broken about me that makes me the one person who struggles to figure these things out. And something that um, my good friend Julie Raymeyer said to me one time along many years ago was, Um, you know, this feels like it's hard because it's hard, (laughs) not because there's something wrong Mm, with you. mm -hmm. And I felt like that was an epiphany for me. I repeat that a lot to other people because I think it can be really easy to feel like if something is feeling hard to you, it might be because you're not good enough. So one of the things that I hope we promulgate through the open notebook is this sense of this is hard. It's a set of complex skills. It takes time to learn them Um, you probably will be learning them for the rest of your life Um, but you can do it and there's a community of people here who as it has borne out are extremely interested in and happy to and motivated to hold out a hand to help others um, find their way as well and that's you know that's what's happened i mentioned we've published I don't know the number, but it's, uh, uh, you know, I know like a year ago or something, we started saying more than 500. So maybe it's like more than 560 or something. (laughs) These are stories with, you know, there are hundreds, thousands of science writers who have contributed to these stories as sources and as writers, and um, who are collectively offering up, you know, this vast amount of hard won insight about how to be a good science journalist and that's a you know tremendous act of community generosity that um is really inspiring to me
0: what what i love about too that that all that there's just so much on there is you know usually we say we don't know what we don't know but it's a great Mm -hmm. way to be like oh these like now i know what i don't know because it's like there's all these articles that like i wouldn't have even thought that this would be something i'd need to think about
1: that's exactly right. I, I remember starting out at one point when we started doing these reported features. So we were thinking about topics, not just interviews about a specific story, but topics that we might want to cover. I had a list a, like a spreadsheet of, you know, like kind of five general topics and three ideas in each of them or something. And somehow I, I thought that there was just like going to be a finite list of topics that you could possibly cover. And and then the thing would have run its course. And <laughs> I don't know, maybe that number is finite, but um, every day I'm having to turn away pitches for great story ideas, but we just, you know, we don't have, we publish one story a week. We don't have the resources to to do more than that and um, can't do everything. And so, you know, I don't, I don't have any sense that the, that the ideas are slowing down. What is happening is that we're able to go deeper and, um, you know, to tackle more granular ideas because we've, we've now we've covered some of the, you know, we've done some of the low hanging fruit. So to me, the stories just keep getting more and more interesting because they're getting, um, you know, just more and more finely honed.
0: And speaking of pitches for stories, uh, that was one of the things. So my, one of the, I'll, I'll plug the book up top, which is in large part a compendium of things that have been on the open notebook in addition to some other stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the section on pitching was the one thing as an academic that I come to and I'm like so what is this mysterious process <laughs> that has <laughs> yeah. to happen before any of this takes off and my I remember my favorite entry that that I read last when I had the book last summer was uh an interview on uh common errors, where it was like an interview with editors from different outlets. And it was just like, oh God, like how useful is this <laughs> to just talk to the people <laughs> who are combing through these constantly? To be like, what are the, you know, the the sins of a of a bad pitch? But so in addition to that, the open notebook also has this pitch database, which also strikes me as quite a useful resource that is otherwise like, how else could you possibly Come to a resource like that if it weren't for someone or some organization collecting them. So, what is this, and and how could people use it?
1: Sure. Uh, so maybe I'll talk a little bit about just what is this pitching business all about. Uh, and I think the thing to to that you have to know about science journalism in particular. This is also true of some other areas of journalism, but in science journalism. Um, It is a field that is um, heavily dependent on freelancers, people who don't work on the staff of any particular publication, but they are self-employed and they write stories for a variety of different publications. That's what I did for 10 years, and um, I don't think we have the the solid numbers, but I would guess that um, at least half of science journalists are freelancers, if not more. And so if you are going to be a freelancer, that means that you have to be able to sell editors at publications on your story ideas. If you want to, if you want to write those stories and get paid for them, you have to convince someone to actually publish them. It's not like if you just worked for it for, you know, the New York Times and you can just tell your editors your ideas for the next stories, and they'll tell you which ones to go for. And, you know, I've never worked for the New York Times, so I don't really know. But, um, but, you know, you have some sense of like, I'm going to be writing stories for the New York Times. And, you know, they have to get approval, I presume, but it's a different process. But if you're a freelancer, you need to always be selling story ideas to editors. And you do that by writing what's called a pitch letter or a query letter. And it's just an email um that tells an editor you know i'm proposing a story idea to you you know here's what the angle is on the story You know, here's what the story is all about here is why it's timely here's what makes it original here's why your publication or your readers would be interested in this story here's why i'm the person to do it and so a pitch letter is uh, basically a piece of persuasive writing and it can be anywhere from a, a few sentences if you're real familiar with a publication or it's a real um short story or something and you know you already have an in there could be as short as a few sentences more commonly it's in the realm of you know two to five paragraphs describing your story and and you know why they should hire you to do it and i had never seen a pitch letter by anybody else before becoming a freelancer i was just completely guessing what it should look like when you email an editor to pitch a story. And I think that's probably true for most freelancers. You know, we just, that's not something that's publicly available normally. And we don't, we don't know what it looks like. And we, we just kind of, you know, we might ask friends for ideas or, or something, but we're kind of stumbling around in the dark, trying to figure out what, what that should look like. And so the pitch database was actually Jeannie's idea that we would create, we would solicit keep other freelancers to share pitches that they had written that were successful. And then we'd also share the link to the published story. And like the Open Notebook as a whole, it's something that I think we initially thought of as, you know, maybe it would have, I don't know what we thought, maybe we thought it would have like a dozen or 15 pitches or something. And now it has close to 300 and we actually are looking actively to expand it to be more inclusive of other kinds of stories that aren't represented in the pitch database right now, like radio stories and podcasts and so on, for example. So that's what the pitch database is all about. Is you can you can go and you can search by publication or by um, news versus features versus profiles, or you can just browse things and look for inspiration and understanding about how other writers have written pitch letters. As the article that you talked about reading in the book, it was one of our very early stories, I think it was written in 2011. Um, And it's a it's a roundtable discussion amongst a bunch of editors led by Laura Helmuth, who now is the editor in chief of Scientific American. Um, She interviewed a bunch of editors about what their pet peeves are about pitches that they get and what not to do. And that article actually has for many years been the most popular article on our website. It was a no-brainer to include it in the craft of science writing when we were coming up with this book because we just knew it would be so popular. And even though I think maybe every single one of those editors who were part of that roundtable no longer works for the same publication where they worked at the time, Um, it's still, you know, it's, it's really evergreen. Um, and I, I think people, freelancers feel like it's a breath of relief to have the curtain pulled back and understand what editors are really thinking.
0: Yeah. It's super valuable, especially when you just have no concept, right. And you would otherwise just be guessing. Uh, and I have to imagine that (laughs) these editors get a bunch of bizarre pitches, not because the writer doesn't have anything to say but because there's these like unwritten norms Uh there's
1: so many you know we we talk a lot about um we think a lot about issues of equity and inclusion in science journalism and one of one area where that's an issue is that there's this sort of unwritten curriculum Uh, You know, this is true in in many, many different fields. But in science journalism, there is an unwritten curriculum about how you approach an editor. And it has to do with, you know, a lot of it is sort of um, just issues of of etiquette, like how soon can you follow up if you don't hear back from them? Or something as basic as should your pitch be like a Word document that's an attachment in the email or should it be in the body of an email? Um, Should you link to your... Um, writing samples, or, or should you um, include them as PDFs? Like, how would you know if you don't know? And um, one of the things that we you know, our overarching goal at the open notebook is to demystify what can be a field that feels like it has a lot of barriers to entry, particularly for people who come from marginalized backgrounds. Um, other historically underrepresented backgrounds or places in the world where there is not a robust um, infrastructure for training people in journalism.
0: Okay. So to wrap up uh, and get to Mm -hmm. uh, something that I think might be a tangible takeaway, a theme that I see in stuff that you wrote in the book and also just throughout the Open Notebook is uh, there should be an emphasis on story rather than topic that sort of strikes me as a mantra that's maybe like a guiding one and and so could mm-hmm. you explain a little bit like what that means and how you could navigate being better at finding stories and not topics
1: yeah absolutely that is something that writers hear from editors all the time pitch me a story not a topic mm. And then writers can be like, "What do you mean by that?" (laughs) And um, you know, I think for a long time I didn't understand what does that mean. I'd I'd like throw something at the wall and see if it sticks. And if they said "great angle," I'd be like "super," but I don't really know. (laughs) Um, But when we talk about um, pitching a story and not a topic, or writing about a story and not a topic, what we're really saying is that there has to be every story has to have some kind of central driving idea Um, what i often say when i give workshops is um, just like every bus needs a driver every story needs a central driving idea and basically it is a question or an argument or a piece of news that is the core reason for being of that story where if you if if you um, had to just tell someone in one sentence what the story is all about you would be able to do that and your sentence would have a verb and you know it would it would be a complete sentence. So, an example of a topic might be climate change, or COVID vaccines, or you know um, Chat GPT, or you know there's a bazillion topics out there. But a story is something more than that. A story is a small sliver of that topic that um, encompasses some question or argument or happening, you know, piece of news that is worth telling people about on its own in your judgment. And um that that art of understanding what is a story is a is a really core piece of being a science writer. Because for example, there are thousands of scientific journals publishing articles every single day. But not every piece of not every scientific development adds up to a story for a general reader. It needs to. It's. It might be very important science. It's very often very incremental science. Um, but just because it's science that needed to be done doesn't mean that in itself it's a story. So, so figuring out what is a story is a is a core uh, capacity that a science writer would want to develop.
0: And and it seems like story doesn't necessarily mean like a narrative right like right. like your story means something a little bit different uh mm-hmm. I don't know am I into something,
1: <laughs> yeah, you are, so it's a really important point that you make because sometimes what people we've learned there was a a journal article that came out in the last six months or so, and I'm kind of blanking on where, but um it turned out that when journalists and writers talk about storytelling. What they mean is crafting um, a piece of text, or it could be an audio story or whatever, but crafting material in a way that is going to engage people's interest and hold it, and um, that has some kind of arc to it. There's a beginning and a middle and an end, and that makes meaning out of disorder and so on. It turns out that a lot of people, when they hear journalists talking about storytelling, they think that that means making things up. so it actually <laughs> can be counterproductive to talk about storytelling as a journalistic goal, because to the extent that people think that you're saying, "You know, um, we're just presenting our alternative facts, that's a problem. But, um, but yeah, it's so uh, when we talk about stories, oftentimes it is the case that the best stories have narrative in them, that there's, some, there's a protagonist, that there's some source of tension, that there's an arc that pulls you through the story, that there are scenes, action, dialogue, these kind of classic elements of story are important, but that doesn't mean that the form of every story, every journalism story needs to be a pure narrative. Oftentimes, you know, there are, we have many, many great stories that are mostly explanatory stories. Hmm.
0: Well, so what, what, what what is an explanatory story? Could you elaborate on that a little Mm -hmm. bit?
1: Oh, well, imagine um, you know, early in the pandemic when you were trying to understand uh, whether you should um, get the Pfizer vaccine or get the moderna vaccine, and you maybe you read a story that explained how these two types of vaccines are similar and how they're different and helped it helped you make a decision, perhaps, about what to do. Um, so that was probably an explanatory story. It wasn't a narrative in the sense of like learning about um, the life history of the founding CEO of Moderna and the role that Dolly Parton played in the vaccine development and blah blah blah. It, it was just explaining information to you in a way that you could use. So that's an example of kind of a servicey type of explanatory story. Other types of explanatory journalism could be. Um, You know, next year, we're going to have a total solar eclipse in the US again, um, which is going to be fantastic. And I hope everyone who has the ability to go, go see it. There are going to be a million stories out that just explain about eclipses and how they work. And, you know, and probably other stories that are narrative and like, let a thousand flowers bloom, they will all be great. But there there's a real place in journalism just for just for explaining things to people telling them about a new finding and what it means or telling them about an event that has happened or is going to happen and there there might be little bits of narrative in some of those stories some more than others but
0: yeah so i'm getting sort of like it, rather than being a reference piece where i could just sort of pick up and put down wherever i need information a story is something that is its own unit, right, that carries me through Mm -hmm. from the beginning to the end. And that's what makes it a story and not just like, well, here's six things that I've
1: learned (laughs) about. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the difference between a really engaging magazine article and a Wikipedia article, you don't want a magazine article to read like a Wikipedia article. And Wikipedia has its important place in the world, um, but it is not, by and large, storytelling.
0: If you were to encourage people to build this muscle, particularly my guess is academically minded people are kind of uh, stick to the facts and this is what they did. And this is what they found. What more do you want from me? (laughs) Uh, Are are there ways in which people could try to flex that story muscle?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And one of the points that we um, harp on a lot at the open notebook is just that there are, um, there are many, things that can draw people into a story and that you can use narrative in very small ways even in the shortest stories and narrative is not antithetical to factuality and i think maybe that's the most important thing is that um you don't if you have a story about science to tell telling it in a way that involves people and human decision making or motivations or drama or challenges or whatever um, does not take away from the factual validity of what you're talking about. It just makes it something that people are more likely to be interested in actually reading. And, you know, a really kind of important thing to remember if you're interested in telling science stories is that most of the time, nobody has to read them. So if you want to write something or record something or make a video about something and you want anyone to actually read it or listen to it or watch it, you got to make it interesting. And, um, that's really what it's all about is to be accurate. Accuracy of course is, is the lowest bar we have. You know, our story, if they're not accurate, they're not journalism, but facts are not what, what, motivate people and change people's minds that's what stories do
0: well this is great <laughs> and I, I appreciate all of it all the work uh, well, that you. went into to making this open notebook resource available and thanks for taking the time to talk about it
1: thanks so much for talking with me i enjoyed it
0: Thank you to Siri Carpenter for telling her story and talking about her work. If you haven't already, what you need to do now is just plug in theopennotebook.com into your internet machine and poke around. Then you'll order Siri's book, The Craft of Science Writing, and be better off for it. If you're too distracted right now by the car in front of you or whatever, just don't worry, Like links are in the show notes. This series on science communication is a special presentation of my podcast, Opinion Science, a show about the science of our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. You can subscribe any old place where they have podcasts. Your Apples, your Spotify's, your Stitcher's out of business now, actually, so you'll have to find something else. And be sure to check out opinionsciencepodcast.com for all the episodes and everything else you could possibly dream of. And again, whoever you are, I hope you're enjoying the show, and I'm hoping this summer series will reach folks with a keen interest in science communication, so please tell people about it. Post online, email a friend, uh, I don't know, tell your babysitter, anyone who would be interested in boosting their own communication skills, especially scientists who would like to reach beyond academia. Okay, doke. Thank you so much for listening. My birthday was the other day, so happy birthday to me or whatever. <laughs> I'll go eat some more secret birthday cake and I'll see you back here next week for another look at the work of science communication.
2: I think the reason why they're so delightful is because they're talking about the thing that they probably love the most or that they know the most about. And they're probably so delightful because no one ever cares as much as, as like we do about what they're talking about. Like for the most part, someone who studies barnacles is probably jokingly told like, don't talk too much about barnacles. But then they come on my podcast and I'm like, you tell me everything you know about barnacles. (laughs) I'm just gonna sit here, you fire hose me about barnacles. And they're like, yes! And so I think you're catching them at like a, a moment of someone walking through the gates of Disneyland, where they're like, here I go, I get to do my thing. And so I think that feeling celebrated is a great way to bring out the best in people. My name is Allie Ward, and I'm the host of the Ologies podcast, and I'm a sci-commer and a TV presenter for shows like Brainchild on Netflix and Innovation Nation on CBS and Science Channel and some other stuff. And I'm talking to you from a shed in my yard.